0: Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine. Each week, we feature a new interview, narrated essay, or story exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Richard Powers is the author of 12 novels. His most recent, The Overstory, won last year's Pulitzer Prize. He is a recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship and the National Book Award, and has been a four-time National Book Critic Circles Award finalist. I spoke with Richard about the overstory and his intention to tell a story in which humans are not separate from the living world around them. As the lives of his human characters are shaped and directed by the lives of trees, they are forced into a reckoning, that their very existence is contingent on water, soil, and other creatures. At a time when the dominant narrative is one which upholds the promises of technological transformation and lauds humans as the sole heroes, Richard advocates instead for a plant consciousness in which we replace the life of commodity with the life of community. All the characters in The Overstory have encounters and experiences with trees that greatly impact them and lead them on life-changing journeys that we follow during the course of the book. As I understand it, the seed behind the overstory was an unexpected encounter you had with a redwood tree here in California. I wonder if you could start off our conversation by sharing this experience and how it led you to want to write a book about trees.
1: I'd be happy to. I had actually written on environmental subjects in the past, and in particular, my uh, 2006 novel, The Echo Maker, uh, took the question of the relationship between the human and the non-human as one of its central preoccupations. But I wasn't particularly tree conscious myself I guess I was as a as a small child as as most small children are you know the, the ability to to look at a tree and see an animate active agent is, is pretty ubiquitous in childhood and uh, we get that drummed out of us along the way by 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 various means uh, by the time I moved to Northern California to teach at Stanford I had Sunk pretty deeply into that kind of myopia that we humans suffer, that is characterized by the belief that we are pretty much the only interesting game in town. And although I, I, I had treated uh, the non-human in my previous eleven novels, I think I, I was, without knowing it. Pretty colonized by this idea that the human story was self-generating and self-justifying, and it was w- with that state of mind uh, that I began teaching at Stanford, which, as you know, is a is a tremendous uh, technologically oriented school, um, and probably the primary generator of the phenomenon of Silicon Valley, uh, from my house in Palo Alto, I could easily bike within just a few minutes to the, to the headquarters of Apple and Intel and HP and, and Google and Facebook and Netflix and pretty much the whole gamut of companies that had been so instrumental in creating the present and that we were very very busy uh creating the future and i remember uh undergoing a a scare a, a medical scare uh that made me quite conscious of my own mortality i, I was in my mid 50s and uh realized you know at this at this juncture that whether or not I had to face a serious health crisis uh, this time around, I would soon enough. And and uh, it was with that enhanced uh, awareness of mortality that I found myself at a dinner party one night in, in Palo Alto. And the topic did come up. And we all began sharing, you know, we, we aging uh, uh, professors all began to share our, our mortality stories. And there, there were folks there uh, from uh, the 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 community of uh, Silicon Valley who were saying that that it's a litany there that we should all just hold on a little bit longer because uh, if we can make it through the next few years technology was going to cure all the design flaws of biology including death <laughs> and i guess it was it was that sense of i am not sure that this is a future that i've you know that i can reconcile myself to and that, and that sense of of the oppressiveness of the of the melioristic and the transformative uh, engine of this place that made me turn increasingly toward Uh, the Santa Cruz mountains up above town between the valley and, and the Pacific. And in order to escape that sense of mastery and control, uh, a a future in which all things would be managed to our benefit, I would disappear for longer and longer periods of time up, up into the, the the trails uh, of the central peninsula and the Santa Cruz mountains and into the long past. These, uh, mountains. uh, You've probably been down there at one time or another. Uh, They're covered with second growth redwood forests and and, uh, other very interesting forest biomes. Uh, But it's hard not to walk through a redwood forest, even a fairly young one, without that profound sense of the spiritual you know these are enormous trees they're they're like the columns of a church the 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 sense of verticality is immense the the sounds the scale and and you know simply the overwhelming haunting silence of those forests is very sobering and i i guess i wasn't initially extremely conscious of the fact that these were fairly young trees. They were only 100 years old or so. A redwood can do amazing things in less than a century. You know, They're there's still enormous trees. And walking through this second growth forest, uh, one day I came across uh, a tree that had somehow, by the accident of history, escaped the loggers that had clear-cut uh, these mountains. And if you are impressed by what a redwood can do in a hundred years, seeing what one can do in fifteen hundred years is absolutely mind altering. And there I was standing in front of a tree that was the, the, the width of a good sized house and you know, a football field in height and almost as old as the as the Roman Empire. And I just a number of things came clear to me in that moment. I mean, one is that these mountains would have been covered in trees that size, and they had all been cut down to build and rebuild San Francisco, uh, to 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 build Palo Alto, to build uh, the the railroad that Leland Stanford uh, had so profited from, and, and and it essentially, you know, it became clear to me that Silicon Valley was down there because these redwoods were up here. And the story that we tell about this technological transformation of the world in which we are the central soul heroes was not actually telling the whole story, the whole truth. Um, I guess it was also this sense that life was operating on a frame so much longer and larger and ingenious that I had then I had previously realized, that began uh, that that really kicked me uh, in the head, and and uh, by the time I got to the bottom of the mountain, uh, I was on a a, a journey that would uh, last for years and years, and that has continued beyond the publication of the overstory, and it's the journey to understand trees for sure to 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 see uh, this huge. Taxonomic category that is so instrumental in transforming the world, but it's also a journey uh, to reappraise what the human is and to tell the human story in a more complete and a robust and an honest way. How how deeply dependent we have been upon these other creatures, the communities of other creatures that we have uh, been tempted to treat as mere commodities.
0: Mm, mm. In her review in the New York Times, Barbara Kingsoliver wrote, people will only read stories about people. As this author knows perfectly well, the overstory is a delightfully choreographed, ultimately breathtaking hoodwink. (laughs) And and in in many ways, uh, that felt true to me, you know, as a, First, you feel as though the humans and trees are deeply intertwined, but on somewhat equal footing as characters. And you feel deeply connected to the struggles the characters are going through. But then over time, and as the characters' stories converge, the trees really feel as though they take over as the central character. Mm. Can you talk about your narrative approach for working with and interweaving the human and the non-human stories? I suppose that Barbara Kingsolver
1: uh, is right. There, there is a little bit of a hoodwink involved, or let's call it a bait and sw- bait and switch, in uh, in the book, in which there is an invitation uh, initially to read the book as a as a classic work of literary fiction that's uh, immersed deeply in the lives of individuals who seem to be making meaning in and for themselves. And gradually using this seduction shifts the reader's focus uh, to this broader question of of who we are inside the larger community of life. You could also say, though, that, uh, that there is a kind of hoodwinking in status quo literary fiction that, does not attempt to situate us in that larger context. And the hoodwink, the hoodwink would be the, the invitation to the reader to believe that there is a separate story called humankind and a separate story called nature. This has never really been the case in, in world literary fiction until fairly recently, you know, within the last couple of centuries, in the West, in the, in the post-industrial West. In some ways, what I was doing in the overstory was trying to return to that time and those places that knew that you could not tell a human story as if it were separate from the story of all the neighbors. Um, that, and it was a great it was a great comfort and a great uh, astonishment in a way for me to realize that most of world literature, for most of human history and most of the places of the globe, would not have lifted an eyebrow at the idea of this other kind of hoodwinking, this telling of our story through their stories. It is a, a, a return to this more deeply indigenous kind of fiction in which there's no separating us from the neighbors.
0: Mm. You said that stories that expound an individualist, human exceptionalist, commodity-mediated worldview are a late-day cultural invention, as you just described in many ways.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that invention starts to happen around the early nineteenth century in Western Europe and in North America, where you know where our various technologies our various ability to uh, you know increasing ability to manipulate time and space so seduce us into thinking that we can go it alone. That somehow we're we're no longer uh, a, a dependent member of a community, um, and and within a very short period of time, that seduction has become so complete that it, it takes conscious effort to see the degree to which we each have been colonized by it.
0: And you've also talked about how we need stories that focus on the non-human or the new human and the non-human relationship if we're to address the tremendous ecological crisis that we're facing
1: well in fact you can you can understand the ecological crisis that we're facing as a direct inevitable consequence of the attitude of human separatism you know the idea that we are exceptional and independent and autonomous has created a culture in which these great, teeming, reciprocal communities of living things became nothing but commodities which we could use with impunity as as if somehow the very cycles of interdependence uh, were no longer something that we had to answer to.
0: Mm. But in Overstory, the characters learn to invest in trees with the same sacred value that humans typically only invest in themselves. And you said in doing so, they violate, you know, this individual-centered capitalism taboo. Um, So it's almost like there's a protest that's happening in the stories of the characters unfolding. Yeah.
1: I mean, most of them begin very comfortably inside that world that we all inhabit, where meaning is private and personal, something that we construct for ourselves, it depends on amassing a certain degree of comfort and power, you know all, all the things that that a, a person in North America, when asked you know what would be a meaningful life would would enumerate the ability to 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 move freely and powerfully through the world and to enjoy. Uh, the material comforts necessary in order to to reflect and enjoy and and socialize with other people, but somewhere along the way, something happens to each one of them to trip up that assumption and to yank them out of that sense of a purely personal and synthetic and invented meaning and push them out into the into not what we humans call the real world, which, by which we usually just mean the social, the invented world, um, but into the living world and, and you know, force them to take the place that they're living in as something alive with agency and hugely occupied by very specific creatures whose desires are different from their own and that's the the moment of great awakening that's the that's the conversion moment that the that the book tells again and again through these various characters it's one you know it's 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 one that so transforms individual consciousness that none of these characters can take for granted their own sense of privilege or pride of place in the world. That suddenly they are forced to a a deep reckoning, the degree to which their own existence has always been contingent on the air and the water and the soil that these other creatures are
0: maintaining and creating. You, you talk about your your characters undergoing a conversion and you've also talked about your experience in writing this book as being I think you actually said a religious conversion <laughs> uh. minus
1: minus the <laughs> deity I'm afraid or you know I just I mean it's a, it's a kind of you know what Bron Taylor calls dark green religion you know it's the it's the realization that there that there is a teleology there is a vital force and it's in the form of of, you know, this this molecule, you know, self-replicating molecule that has gone through millions and millions of variations and is just out there um, animating the planet. I guess, yeah, I guess if you had to name the religion that I was converted to, it would probably be animism.
0: <laughs> well, you know, trees became so much more for you than the subjects of your book, and I'm curious to hear more about how writing this book changed you. What was the result of this conversion yeah. to animism? <laughs>
1: well, I'll tell you something very specific. Uh, I, I this is my twelfth novel. I've been writing novels for over a third of a century. It's the first novel that ever moved me across the country and literally changed my life in terms of you know what I do all day long, how I live, and where I live and And the story is this: I was stunned when I began to read about the redwoods of Northern California to discover that of their initial range uh, somewhere between only five and two percent of old growth redwood forests still exist and As I read deeper into the history of trees in North America, it stunned me once again to discover that that same proportion holds true for all of the forests of North America. That of the four great continent-spanning forests that were intact when Europeans first arrived on this continent just a short time ago, only two to five percent of the primary forests remain, and I'm an easterner you know i I, I lived and uh, grew up and spent most of my life in the Midwest, and I kept reading that there are almost no old growth forests left east of the rocky mountains the The, the number is even less than two percent. The, the the number of primary forests in the west is slightly higher and the and the average comes comes out to to be between 2 to 5%. And I kept reading that if you wanted to see what an eastern old growth forest looked like looks like that one of the best places one of the only places that you can go to is the Great Smoky Mountains on the boundary between eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina, that this is one of the largest contiguous remaining old growth forests in the eastern United States. And one of the few places you can go to get a feel of what a, what a broadleaf deciduous forest looked like before the Europeans, indeed looked like 10,000 years ago. So I made a research trip about four and a half years ago, five years ago, to come and see the Smokies because there's still 120,000 acres of, of uncut primary forest inside the boundary of the National Park, about a quarter of the National Park. And I went into the Smokies thinking that I knew what an eastern forest looked like. I mean, I'd grown up around them and I'd hiked in them all my life. And indeed, when I started started in on this this trip to see the old growth I was walking through forests that were more or less recognizable to me but they, they they were the regrowth forests the ones you know of 100 years old or or more but when i crossed that threshold from from a regrowing forest a recovering forest into the old growth it was genuinely like that moment in The Wizard of Oz where it goes from black and white to color. You know, you just, you don't have to be forest literate. When you, when you walk one of these trails that goes up into the old growth, you, you cross a threshold and it looks different, it smells different, it sounds different. And I was up, you know, up at elevation in the middle of a forest and seeing sights and hearing sounds and smelling smells that could very well have been experienced at the end of the last ice age, and that would have been everywhere on this continent. and. It was a moment at least as powerful as the one when, when I ran into the, the old-growth redwood in, in California. I just thought, this is mm-hmm. my country. This is the legacy and endowment, the, the core principle nat- of natural capital in the eastern U.S. And you have to work hard to see it. Um, I left that trip really shaken by that experience and and— Eight months later, I was still thinking about that and thinking about how I felt and thinking about what that those places looked like. And I just thought, boy, if I am still obsessed with this almost a year later, that's got to say something. So I, I went back to the Smokies and I bought a house right on the edge of the park. And I have been living there ever since.
0: Wow. And what's that been like for you these last few years, being so close to that forest and spending so much time in it?
1: Well, that's exactly what I meant when I said it's profoundly changed my day-to-day reality. Throughout all the years of my career as a writer, since I was a subscriber to that idea that human reality was the reality and social exchange was the, you know, the primary way of making meaning in my private life, I had a tremendous sense of literature as commodity and, you know, productivity. And my day consisted of, you know, I would sit and write until I had 1,000 good words. And I did not leave my desk until those words pleased me. And now I wake up and I go outside on the deck and I say, what is it doing out there? and what is it you know what are what are my possibilities for discovery and connection and if the if the weather is right i go out and and just as you know the initial the initial requirement for my day was my thousand words now it's like i don't feel good about myself unless i've been present or attentive to some living community Gave me a sense of my own personal place, and it was you know it is the shifting of that work ethic from a thousand words to you know four miles or five miles um,
0: <laughs> that has
1: completely altered my own my own sense of vocation as a writer, it's changed my style, it's changed the rhythm of my days.
0: The overstory is filled with myths about trees, uh, Greek, Egyptian, Indian, Chinese, and Native American myths. And you've said that you were trying to resurrect a very old form of tree consciousness. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about this and your use of myth throughout the book?
1: It was thrilling as I began to do my research to discover that wherever I looked in in whatever culture that if I went far enough back, trees were right at the center of, of the foundational stories. And in particular, this notion of permeability, this idea that we weren't really all that separate, that we weren't as far away from these other creatures as we believed. And, you know, uh, the, the great example of that for our own tradition would be Ovid, and the metamorphosis is, is a central organizer of of the book. Mm. It It's almost as if these stories, you know, standing as they do outside of the human exceptionalist story, either, you know, long before or on the threshold of this notion of you know, uh, setting off into our own mythos. These stories are warnings. They, they call us back to kinship. And again and again, they are about how our destinies and our bodies and our souls are are contingent and intertwined with trees. And It was also really marvelous as I dug deeper into into the mythologies of transformation and metamorphosis and um, communication and kinship to discover how deeply derived cultures are from the plant life of their location. There are something somewhere between 60 and 100,000 species of trees on uh, the planet, and that number itself is so fluid, and trees have been around for so very long. I mean, the, the basic solution of arborescence goes back 400 million years, which is... Roughly two thousand times longer than the entire history of our own species, you know, <laughs> uh, anatomically modern human. So that's that's a bit sobering in itself. But because that category is so taxonomically loose and so dependent upon the conditions, the local conditions of geography, the idea of what a tree is is hugely variable. And I mean, we know that in a in a fairly you know banal way to to grow up in New England and to be surrounded by uh, by sugar maples produces a very different kind of consciousness than uh if you were to grow up down here in southern Appalachia and be surrounded by uh tulip poplars and and uh uh, hickories and rhododendrons, and a, an entirely different experience, again, uh, growing up in Northern California, surrounded by redwoods, or in uh, the Southwest, you know, in in the shadow of giant saguaro cacti. So the plants of an area are absolutely indispensable in the formation of a, of the local character of humanity. And part of the Part of the technological myth, you know, part of this seduction of the huge leverage that, that our prosthetic tools have given us is that we can globalize and become a kind of single culture independent of where we live. And so much of the push of, of post-industrial North America has been toward homogenizing place it's it's you can you can think about this you know as you travel how much of the world that you're traveling through has been redesigned in order to comfort you with this illusion of familiarity and continuity mm-hmm. mm. but to to sit in a comfort inn or a la quinta or you know some interchangeable place on some interchangeable uh you in know, interstate, uh, using, you know, watching some interchangeable uh, cable program uh, in this interchangeable culture that we've created, and then to look out the window and see that remnant of Native life that reminds you, oh, wait a minute, I'm not in Kansas anymore, or, or California, <laughs> or Tennessee, is quite a, quite a remarkable moment. You know to, to to remember just how badly deformed we've we've come to think about place and how how amnesic we've become about the power of place uh, to to be something different everywhere.
0: Mm. I mean the myths offer opportunities for remembrance uh, and kinship, as you describe. Uh, But they also do a remarkable job of creating awe uh, and wonder. And one of the things that really struck me in reading The Overstory is how instilled with a sense of awe I was as a reader, Um, not only for trees, but for the broader living world. And it seems that instilling a sense of awe and wonder is key if we're to build respect and reverence for the living world and respect. Bond to this ecological crisis um, from that place of respect and reverence and that stories have a key role to play at this time. Could you talk a, a bit about that?
1: You've said that very beautifully. And, and my initial feeling is that I'm not sure how I can enhance upon what you've already described. I do have to, I do have to say that there are components of awe that make it a difficult lesson for 2020 North Americans. Because awe, as an emotion, is close to other emotions that we've been taught to be deeply uncomfortable with. Awe and fear are not that far from each other. Right. And our whole culture is based upon the attempted annihilation of fear the, the 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 myth that we can somehow make ourselves safe you know going all the way back to what i was saying about silicon valley where if you just hang on a little bit longer you won't have to die that that little myth is really insidious in in the way that we live that somehow we can avoid pain we can avoid loss we can avoid m- mortality through the power of our technologies so, we're not comfortable with fear. The other emotion that awe is very close to is humility the realization that there is no separate mode of existence, that our very lives are dependent upon the lives of others over which we can have no control. The, the renunciation of control is something that does not come easy to us. So, it's not, it's not simply sufficient to be appreciative or amazed or delighted by the immense diversity and fecundity and ingenuity and inventiveness of other living things. To be truly filled with awe, you also have to be aware of your own transience, your own ephemerality, your own relative insignificance in this huge community. And and th- those aren't those aren't easy for us to 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 go from the Lord and Master to to just another member of a of a big community. That's a tough. That's a tough lesson. That's a tough step.
0: The different relationship to time between humans and trees is a theme that runs throughout the book and is beautifully illustrated in the opening chapter about the whole family's relationship to a chestnut tree. Joel Hole, whose father planted the tree, decides to capture the tree and see what the thing looks like, sped up to the rate of human desire, by taking a photograph of the tree in the exact same place each month. And this then continues for several generations. I'm curious how your relationship to or your understanding of time has changed through the course of writing this book.
1: It was, it was really the great challenge of the book to try to find literary devices that would allow me to put trees and people adjacent to each other as characters because of this profound difference in their scale of time. And the time-lapse photographs or the, you know, the, the long project of, of taking individual photographs and then turning them into a kind of flip book over, you know, a, a century worth of still photos uh, was one device that I used to, to translate tree time into human time. Uh, and then there are others. For instance, there's a moment when uh, Douglas Pavlicek is f- falling out of the sky. <laughs> His plane has been shot down in Southeast Asia and... The, the narration, you know, which is operating on the time frame of this guy, you know, who's accelerating at 32 feet per second per second toward the surface of the earth is suddenly interrupted and the story backs up a couple of centuries and starts telling about how a banyan tree on the ground, you know, beneath him uh, has unfolded, you know, having been Pollinated by this one unique species of wasp that you know corresponds to the one unique species of fig, and 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 the and the banyan un, unfolding into a into a multiple-trunked you know small village-sized tree over the course of centuries, you know is handled in a, in a in about a, a paragraph or two, and then cutting back to Douglas who now lands safely in the branches of this tree that. Conveniently, has taken the last couple of centuries to grow up uh, just underneath the spot where he's falling. So different kinds of devices like that to try to playfully translate human time into uh, tree time and vice versa. But it's it's an immense challenge because tree time, either at the level of the individual, or at the level of the communal organism, or at the level of the species, is just it just dwarfs. Everything that we can think of, when we think of duration, uh, a tree in, in the in the Great Basin, you know, in the White Mountains of of California, the bristlecone pine, uh, where individual bristlecone pines can live to you know five thousand years or 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 more. You know, who knows? You know, we haven't we haven't found the oldest one. Even five thousand years is is mind blowing because you're starting to. You know, go back to the Great Pyramids. You're starting to get back to that moment where humans invented writing, and to think that individual trees were alive when we were blundering toward those first technologies is really mind-blowing. But there's also a moment in the book where Patricia Westerford stops uh, in a in a place in Utah uh, to to visit an aspen clonal colony, and the the amazing thing about aspens, one of many amazing things about aspens is that the individual s- trunks of a, of a grove of aspens, of a stand of aspens, might only be, you know, 60, 70, you know, 80 years old, but they're connected to a root mass underground that has been spawning for tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of years. And, you know, Patricia is meditating on this difference of, between the time above the ground and the time below the ground. And when you start to think about an individual organism that has been growing out of the same root mass for as long as the human species has been extant, that's a tough story to, to, to put in juxta- those, those stories to, to put in juxtaposition with each other because of just how profoundly different they, their, their frames are, their narrative frames.
0: Did you end up feeling smaller as a result of being dwarfed by this new sense of time? that you were connected to?
1: It depends on what you mean by you. And <laughs> in, the, in the sense that we're most familiar with it now, that that kind of private individual, yeah, sure. Uh, humility and, and, and fear and insignificance were, were, were all feelings that I felt as I made this journey. But that's not a genuine or legitimate perception of being it's it's a cultural illusion and if if you allow kinship then the question of you becomes more permeable and what happened to me along the way was i began to identify across species boundaries i began to, to feel like the journey is so profoundly imbricated and knotted together that my own destiny and the destiny of these other things were not anywhere near as separate as I thought they were when I started the journey. So did I become smaller and more vulnerable? Yes. But I also became larger in a Whitmanesque way. I started to contain multitudes or they started to contain me.
0: In the history of the mainstream environmental movement, the idea of saving the world has been a dominant narrative, one that you could say perpetuates a human exceptionalist worldview and often ignores the deeper roots of the ecological crisis. And as several of the characters in the Overstory realize, it's not the world that needs saving, it's us. And this seems to be a realization that more people are coming to and perhaps one reason why the Overstory struck such a chord with readers. How do you see us being saved and do you think it's possible collectively?
1: In the shortest imaginable formula, we have to escape The life of commodity and replace it with the life of community. We have to give up this notion that human destiny is to manage and control and to dominate and replace it with the idea that human destiny depends, as all other destinies do, at making ourselves better at adapting to the environment, because the environment is 99% living things. What's going to be required is a conversion of consciousness, and I I call it plant consciousness. We, We have to, one by one, until we reach a certain critical threshold, begin that journey into... Interdependence and into reciprocal communal existence. There, there's a there's a beautiful line in in Thoreau. You know, he says, "Breathe the air, drink the drink, taste the fruits, live in each season as it passes, resign yourself to the influence of the earth." We need to change the human program. From one that says, take control of the seasons, to one that says, belong to them in the most ingenious and leverageable way. How did we ever think that we could do anything else? Well, I know how. We we got this incredible principle inheritance uh, in the form of petrochemicals, which incidentally are the legacy of 400 million years of plant life. Um, And we got this, you know, this immense fortune uh, that gave us the illusion of autonomy. And we began to live as if we did not have to belong to the the cycles of living things. Uh, The immense power in that concentrated energy was so enormously leverageable and so enormously seductive that we truly forgot that all forms of life are accountable to the basic cycles of energy exchange on this planet and you know like any like any kid who gets an inheritance and squanders it we're now coming to a reckoning we're now we're now realizing the finite nature of that kind of life and the immense costs involved in having lived that way for so long.
0: Mm. One of your characters, the scientist Patricia Westerford, makes discoveries about tree communication that echo the work of Suzanne Samard's groundbreaking work revealing the complex layers and levels of communication and nutrient sharing between trees. Uh, the kinship that's present there in trees and forests as a whole. It seems that these scientific scientific revelations point to a need to rethink how we understand natural selection and survival of the fittest and how we perceive the relationship between competition and cooperation. I'm curious to hear your thoughts yeah. on this.
1: Let me start by saying that um, Simmer's work is truly extraordinary and she, she was... A voice in the wilderness, and she did uh, suffer a lot of uh, rejection along the way. in a, In a way similar to my character Patricia Westford, but she actually isn't alone. There, there were many researchers, you know, even um, a, a generation or more before Simmerd's work uh, that were laying the foundation of this whole new understanding of tree interdependence and communication. It began with research into over-the-air communication, the the way in which a tree, an individual tree under assault, will begin to pump out uh, uh, chemical signals that have the effect on nearby trees of making them begin to preemptively produce Uh, insecticides, chemicals that are unpleasant to ruminants, for instance. Uh, In other words, the trees sharing a a vast uh, immune system where the damage to the forest as a whole is reduced because individual trees produce signals that alert other trees. And the underground sharing is, is equally astonishing, especially now that it's been demonstrated that it crosses the species barrier, so that fungus and trees that are in a mycorrhizal symbiotic relationship where the tree supplies sugars and other hydrocarbons to the to the fungus, you know, which can't photosynthesize for itself, and the fungus reciprocally sends secondary metabolites from the soil back up to the trees. Um is in itself remarkable enough as a, as an example of just how deeply seated symbiosis is in, in every ecosystem. But the the fact that a, you know a Douglas fir and a birch uh, might be sharing resources through fungal intermediaries really blows away this idea of you know that that we have the sort of crude public understanding of. Uh, you know, it's a jungle out there every, every, you know, by which we mean it's every species for itself and every individual inside that species for itself. Uh, once you begin to see how deep seated cooperation is in the, in the heart of all ecosystems, it's almost embarrassing to have to own up to this idea that, that has filtered into, uh, Social understanding, uh, where competition is the only engine that's that's going on out there, Um, which of course would be ridiculous. I mean, to 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 compete to the exclusion of the other living things in your ecosystem would be to die a very lonely death. Uh, The fundamental notion of natural selection is still intact, but what's the the new appreciation the the ways in which uh, the new appreciation has transformed that formula has to do with the realization that environment fittest for the environment isn't doesn't mean fittest for some sort of static set of energetics, you know, a finite pool of energy that's coming into a fixed system. The environment is other living things. So survival of the fittest, the fittest organism for for an environment is one that's most fully and robustly and sustainably intertwined with the other living things in its location. Um, And, you know, if if anybody ever comes out comes back and says you know well yes symbiosis in all its forms uh, is is a is a deep component of ecology and deep element in in natural selection but uh, you you can't make a claim that it's the dominant one I think the answer is to remember that every cell of every complex multicellular organism is itself a symbiosis. All complex cells resulted from this endosymbiotic event in which two simple cells, instead of one digesting the other, began this system, this barter system, whereby uh, um, their inputs and outputs became inseparably linked. So there, There is symbiosis at every sim- single level of living things. And you cannot compete in a zero-sum game with creatures upon whom
0: your existence depends. In Nile Mehta's story, the genius computer programmer and game designer who, like you, had a powerful encounter with a redwood in the hills above Silicon Valley. You seem to be exploring the relationship we have with technology as a tool to either help or hinder our efforts to learn how to live in relationship with the natural world. And in an interview with the LA Review of Books, you said... Will we double down on the great migration into symbol space, our decampment into Facebook and Instagram and Netflix and the world of Warcraft, the road that we have already traveled so far down, or will big data and deep learning allow us to grasp and rejoin the staggeringly complex processes of the living world? The two possibilities are not mutually exclusive. Indeed, they're inseparable aspects of the new ecology of digital life. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about this new ecology of digital life you see. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, as, you were, as you were framing the question, I was thinking to, to look at the affordances of the digital it, it is not entirely different from looking at the affordances of any technology. Um, Every time we come up with one of these prosthetic leverages, there are all of a sudden a whole raft of new pathways that could that can produce both extremely positive valences uh, for the future of society. And by the same token, extremely dangerous and destructive and negative ones, and you know you when you think of a knife, I don't know at what point in human history knives were invented, but there was probably a discussion, you know, oh my god, you know that that thing's dangerous, yes. <laughs> you know well yes, it is uh, and it's a it's a deeply sinister technology you know it's a it's a deeply beneficial technology when you use it to you know, to go hunt and to to cut vegetables, and a, and a deeply sinister one when you use it to to kill other people. Um, you can you can look at um, at Plato, and read uh, Socrates's objections to writing and all the bad things that are going to happen uh, with writing. You know how it's going to destroy our memories and and depersonalize. The, the, the world and and make possible the leveraging of in, in incredibly dangerous ideas. And all of that is deeply true. I mean, writing has really unleashed a whole, you know, can of worms that we haven't caught up with and that we haven't really, um, seen the end of. Uh, so to, to look at digital space and to, to, to wonder about its positive and negative affordances, um, is a deep question and, and a complicated one there there have been people who have read the overstory and who wondered why the nile story is in there at all you know what does what does the world of digital technology have to do with an ultimate vision of conservation and my answer is everything that we we wouldn't even have a science of ecology or a science of environmental studies or uh, the ability to 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 handle or model complex systems to even understand what complex systems are without computation and without complex digital models like it or not it's the it's the way that we have extended our imaginative capacity into the living world as it also produced these incredible negative affordances of of depersonalization of of uh removal increasing removal from the material world beyond a doubt beyond a doubt um the the it's a great theme in science fiction by the way and i look to science fiction as a kind of antidote to the to the myopia of literary fiction that doesn't take uh, the non-human seriously sci-fi sf has always taken the non-human seriously in all its guises including the cybernetic Uh, and I, I was thinking specifically of of, of greg Egan and uh, a work of his where the where all of culture divides into the innies versus the outies you know and and the innies are perfectly happy going down into symbol space and living these virtual lives and you know, waiting for the singularity and uploading their souls into, into these dynamic places which can become wildernesses again. And they, they are completely untroubled by the by the replacement of materiality with virtuality. And the Audis, of course, uh you know are are horrified by that and and want to continue outwards into the material world and all its complications and ramifications. And look upon anything short of living fully embodied in the physical world as a betrayal of, of this incredible legacy. The thing is, both the Inis and the Audis depend upon computation. And that's, that's the crux of this little uh, two-edged sword that we've, that we've created when, in, in launching
0: digital evolution. A lot of the readers of the book seem to have been awakened not only to trees, but to the urgency of the ecological crisis and are inspired to take action in some way. Was this something you wanted to achieve? And for those readers who are compelled to do something, what would you tell them?
1: I'll say first that it's absolutely... The most gratifying response that I can imagine getting to this book or or to any book when a reader writes or says to me in person that they are looking at the living world around them in a different way, there's no better response to the book. When a reader says, you know, I've been living on this street for 25 years and and a, passing this, you know, tree uh, for a quarter of a century and only after reading your book have I been electrified to, to, to stop and be present to and discover what that thing is doing and the amazing, strange structures that it's producing throughout the year. You know, to, to me, that's like, uh, you know, what what more could a writer possibly hope for than to hear from some reader that the story of the world has become more interesting to them. Um that journey was one that I myself made in writing the book. The book took five and a half years, six years to make, and I went from being a virtual tree illiterate to to one to a person who, you know, will pull off randomly on the road when when you know, running a timely errand in order to stop and see something amazing. Um, And I would say that with regard to the question of activism, there have already been cases in towns and municipalities and, and regions in this country and in other countries where people have said that a collective action was given leverage by people reading the book uh, and the book encouraging ordinary non-political people to take stands to protect their, the place where they live from the homogenizing uh, processes of, of capitalism. That's deeply gratifying too. But I think it bears pointing out that short of chaining yourself to a bulldozer or joining radical protest movements out in the trenches, that there is an important step of defiance and transformation and resistance that happens simply at the moment of committing to attentive plant consciousness. It starts in this idea that your own vision of meaning has changed. Through awe, through fear, through humility, you have become someone who sees the need to return to community, and all other actions will follow from that. Right? That, that initial first step of saying, The world is a living place, and I am not the lord and master of it. It, It's a necessary and a sufficient precondition for everything that follows. And it's interesting. A lot of people, you know, I I got this figure from people who were writing um, about the broader climate movement, and they have studied social transformations in the past, in particular these kinds of things that have happened in the last few decades that would have surprised me profoundly if you had asked me to predict, you know, 40 years ago. Like, for instance, LGBT, you know, will there ever be same-sex marriage uh, recognition in the United States? If you'd asked me that in 1980, in 1990, you know, even in 2000, I would have said, sincerely doubt it. And, And from, you know, from one year to the next... A a, a long-standing widespread movement of insistence and resistance tumbled into the mainstream. And the people who study this say the threshold of that transformation, which is almost an Ovidian metamorphosis, happens at a much lower number than you think. You only need about 3.5% of a general population committed ideologically to the revolution in order to trigger that transformation where the ordinary mainstream person says hey that's right i can do that i'm with you on that we're going to hit 3.5% in this revolution of returning the the our species to the community of living things the question will be how much suffering will we have to see along the way before we hit that number?
0: Hmm. Well, Richard, I think that's a apt place to, to end our interview. Thank you so much for the richness of your work and our conversation today. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thanks for the conversation. I, I've enjoyed it as well.
0: Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Calliopeia Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found, including Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org